this idea about not opening the books and not reading them and not getting sidetracked by that, and that you're supposed to instead feel them and hold them and see what your relationship is with them. And she also says that whatever the information is in the book, that it's in you, even if you don't remember it, which I thought was really an important point because there are so many books I don't actually really remember reading, but you know that that material must have gone somewhere. Welcome to Spark Joy, the podcast dedicated to celebrating the Kamari method and the transformative power of surrounding yourself with joy and letting go of all the rest. With your hosts and certified Kamari consultants, Kristen Ivey and Karen Sochi. And now, here's the show. Robin Mitchell Cranfield is a graphic designer and illustrator. Her studio specializes in book design for art galleries and for children's books. Her work has been recognized by the American Institute of Graphic Arts, the Alcune Society, and Howe Magazine. Robin teaches typography and book design at Emily Carr University of Art and Design. She lives in Vancouver, Canada with her husband, son, and their cat, Coconut. Welcome, Robin. Thank you. Welcome, Robin, to our books show. We're looking forward to discussing any and all things books with you (laughs) and, of course, tidying as well. And uh, we first want to start with how you became interested in design as kind of an academic pursuit and how that ties to your own Kanmari journey and your own personal tidying. Right. So I started, I graduated from my design college with the idea of focusing on books. And I did book design for my own studio for a few years. And I really enjoyed it, but it is really long hours. And so when I started to want to plan a family, I decided to take a job teaching at a design college near my studio in order to kind of smooth out my hours. And uh, the very first class that I was asked to teach was design history and typography. And I really enjoyed teaching the class. So that's kind of how I got connected to beginning to think about design from that angle. And then I think the second part of that is just in the last few years, I've started thinking a lot more about what a book is. So because I teach book design and I've been doing that for a long time, it's a discussion we have in class quite often. But I think because we're going through these really rapid changes right now where people are communicating by text much more outside of books, like just texting or emailing or making ebooks or whatever, twittering, I started to think more about how the book is a sort of separate item and what's special about the book. And when I read the KonMari book and she talks about the books as items that you relate to emotionally, it really caught my attention and sort of sent me down a path. Just in case there is somebody in the world who has (laughs) not heard about the Marie Kondo books controversy, or maybe they've not quite gotten their fill of hearing about all of that. Well, let's just do a quick review. So Mm. very quickly after the Netflix series, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo came out, there was kind of this um, flash on social media about the issue with books. And a lot of things that were attributed to Marie were like taken either completely out of context or just were not even things she had ever said or, or promoted, just not even accurate. There was this idea somehow that people decided that Marie Kondo had said that everyone should only have 30 books mm-hmm. or 
that they should just get rid of all their books altogether or that, that books, there should be some criteria that she had decided would determine whether or not people should have a particular book in their home. And what was really interesting about it is that, you know, people really reacted extremely emotionally to this. It was not only did you see a lot of it on social media, but there were blog posts and articles in almost every publication about this book thing, which was, I guess, a little surprising to me because of all of the things that there are in your home. It was interesting that books really became kind of the the focus point of this um, backlash. And then, of course, there was a backlash to the backlash and people, you know, defending the method and calling people out for saying things that weren't accurate about what Marie Kondo had said. And it kind of went on and on for a while. How did you read exactly what happened with all of that? What was your interpretation of what had happened during that time? Right. So I read one of those articles just yesterday, actually. It was an article that said, I'm not even going to watch the show because I would never reduce my books down to 30 books. And then it showed pictures of her reading books in her home. (laughs) And I thought, you know, I think it's a really a shame because I think when people are reacting against the idea of 30 books, there's a couple of things that are happening and most of them are not logical, but they are connected to kind of values that people hold. And I would also just say, maybe just as a, to take a step back from this, when I first started reading uh, Marie Kondo, it was maybe four years ago. And already at that point, there were several media cycles of backlash (laughs) And so I think it's kind of worth just acknowledging that we're in a weird media environment right now where we are constantly in this kind of whiplash of we love this and then the people who hate it and then the people who hate the people who hate it is not really that healthy. And it has a lot to do with the fact that we just haven't had access to an internet for very long. So I don't think we've designed mechanisms to be helpful to one another. I think that there's like more than just the people involved. But I also think that in studying book history, people are really emotional about books. Books mean a lot. And there is this panic that people have in the book industry, especially about the death of the book. And I wrote an article for a book magazine last year in which I was saying, like, I think we should just stop talking about the death of the book because we keep predicting the death of the book and then panicking about the death of the book. But actually, if you look back, people panic about the death of the book constantly. Like it goes right back to the first printed books in Europe in the 15th century, early 16th century. People panic that mechanizing printing is going to kill the book. And so once I realized that, I realized (laughs) there's just like another historical cycle that we're going through. Every time we kind of change media, people panic. So that's part of, I think, what's going on. The thing that I think is interesting about people reacting to the 30 books So the background of that is that Marie Kondo had said that she has 30 books, right? That she's narrowed her selection down. And I just re-listened to the section in which she talks about the process of doing that. And she (laughs) the thing I love about Marie Kondo is she is so sincerely caring about her items. Like it's so real. And she's talking about how much she loves her books. And she was feeling really guilty about selecting them. And that she went through a process where she tried to transcribe her favorite parts of her books into a notebook so that she wouldn't feel guilty about letting them go. And so she went through this long process. So I thought it's kind of interesting to react to her as if she doesn't care Mm -hmm. when she clearly does care a lot and also has made a book that has sold, what is it now, 8 million copies or something? 
Even and more now that the even, Netflix has yeah. come out, it's back on the Amazon bestseller list again. So and yeah, so she's contributed something to book culture, but not only that, the book itself that she's made has a reference to previously published books. Mm-hmm. I just think it's kind of interesting to treat her as if she is not part of book culture, because certainly in my studio she is. I own three of her books, yeah, and I have gotten many more books since I read her book. Like it's changed my relationship with books and it hasn't stopped me from purchasing them. So, Mm. but the 30 books, so the 30 books, she was explaining that she'd gotten it down to 30 books and that that was a good number for her. And then people began reacting to that number as if that was a number that she had given them. And this is sort of like a core of a lot of backlash against her, which is that it sort of, in the absence of her giving people a metric, like you should have 30 dresses or you should have you should only have dresses that you've worn in the last season or something. Her metric is to ask you to suggest your own metric. And I think that we live in a culture in which we expect to be given metrics. Does that make sense? And so I think that in the absence of being given like a clear visual or numerical cue, that people kind of panic and begin making up what they think it might be and then arguing against that. And so the thing that I think is a shame is that it becomes a really boring conversation instead of a completely fascinating conversation, which is books are so ubiquitous now. If you go back in time to when they're first made, they would be so valuable that you'd have to chain them into an abbey or something. They're extremely valuable and rare. When they start being printed, all of a sudden, lots of people can get books. And that trajectory keeps going up until the present. So that if I'm in my studio now, I'm sitting around with, you know, more books than a king would have had at some point. And I can treat them sort of casually, you know? So I was looking back at like older writers, what they did before there was uh, book printing and people were so careful with their books, you know, Mm -hmm. and they would kiss Mm -hmm. their books and they would dress up in special outfits to read their books. So they had this very different relationship and we have a really casual relationship with books. So... I think that there is a way in which we're not necessarily appreciating that a book keeps changing too. Like we keep changing, but the book keeps changing. And so we've reached a point now where, you know, if I was living in the 15th century or the 18th century even, I wouldn't need someone to suggest that I declutter my books. It wouldn't come up. But we live now in an era where we have so many that all of a sudden we do have that possibility. And so I think that it's worth people thinking about what their relationship with those books are personally. But it's just really challenging, I think, because people, I think, associate the way that they read books or how they have books in their life with maybe status or meaning. or I just think it comes with a lot of personal issues, like whether or not they're smart or whether or not they care about learning. Anyway, so I think that she's opened up an interesting conversation, and that's the conversation that I want to have. <laughs> Not yeah. with you guys in general, <laughs> but I just mean in general with the world when I see people getting upset about it. And I guess I'll just say one other thing about this, which is that I saw one of my colleagues getting quite upset on Twitter, and there are a lot of tweet storms about this. Like people get quite worked up. She was saying, you know, books are going to outlast this flash in the pan kind of, um, it was that kind of conversation. And I thought, oh, it's so interesting. You know, if I know if I called her up and said, listen, you know, I've got way too many books. Do you want some? She'd never panic. She'd be like, yeah, or no, or there's a charity you could give them to. It wouldn't be that kind of a conversation. And so I think it's just maybe a discomfort. Like it's a cultural panic that has nothing to do with Marie Kondo. I think you've really hit on something so important because what I noticed was that 
even if you could get through to someone who had decided that Marie Kondo was telling them personally they should only have 30 books, and that person was able to say, okay, I understand that it's really okay for me to keep however many books I want, but I don't want anyone to let go of any of their books. I have a problem with this idea that books are disposable in any way whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it had a lot to do with this idea of feeling as though somehow we were minimizing the importance of information because those particular people get their information via an actual physical book, which of course is changing very rapidly. I don't have 30 books. I have a lot more than 30 books, but I don't have 30 physical books. They're all on my devices. And I don't feel a loss or lack of access to information. But I think that there are people who are really concerned about how information is disseminated now, and it's creating a lot of of anxiety. So it's it seems that there's so much more about it than just the fact that people may or may not be comfortable with X number of books in their home. Yeah. And it's so frustrating that people are stuck on the number itself, <laughs> because that's the one thing I think is really, really unique about Marie Kondo's technique as compared to a lot of other mental models in the wellness space is it doesn't give you some prescriptive number about what you should keep. And I always talk about how it gives you the permission to keep whatever sparks joy based on your values and what you like. But the challenging thing about it is it gives you permission to keep whatever sparks joy. And that can be really uncomfortable for people if you don't tell them a specific number or if you do tell them a specific number, they will challenge it to the end of time. So it's just really interesting that it's totally shifting the conversation to how much we're discarding rather than giving us that empowering feeling that this method is supposed to invoke, that we're keeping things with confidence, whether it be sitting on a Sunday morning and reading the Kindle books or keeping a large library of a thousand books on neatly you know, stored on the wall or a bookshelf in our homes. So it's interesting that there's been such a like kind of controversial discussion But I'm really not surprised because this is an unconventional method. And the point is to kind of shake things up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also you're really on to something with the the way that you just described that. And I, I think it's, I think part of what I find so fascinating about her method is that when I'm teaching design, she's touching on an intangible. So for example, I have to teach students how to design, which means I need to give them essentially rules to follow. Mm-hmm. But I need them to know when to break those rules or when to bend those rules and then also how to work intuitively with those rules. Sure. And teaching people intuition is so hard and it also can be really frustrating for them. And so I think like for her to have figured out how to put that into a book, it's really fascinating. And I'm also thinking that we're at a period of time where people keep talking about letting go of a binary and that she very often is outside of a binary, like in terms of like black and white thinking she keeps slipping out of it. So when people were getting upset about the books, I don't know if you saw this, but she had said, so it's not so much what I personally think about books. The question you should be asking is, what do you think about books? Mm -hmm. If the image of someone getting rid of books or having only a few books makes you angry, that should tell you how passionate you are about books, what's clearly so important in your life, Mm -hmm. which is such a perfect answer. And it also steps outside of a debate. Like it steps outside of a debate framework so that she's just saying like, oh, okay, well, your emotion there is actually very important, (laughs) which is the other thing is that, and I wonder if your listeners would relate to this. When I first got into her, 
I sort of looked online to see what other people would say because it, that's just part of my reading experience now. I'm curious how other people feel about things. And I kind of felt a bit shocked that people were having any kind of backlash. Like I, I just sort of felt a bit shocked about the reaction. But in the end, I've actually found the reactions to be really fascinating. It tells me a lot about what people care about and also what they're worried about. So there's that aspect of it too. And if there's any question, literally the life-changing magic of tidying up and the Kanmari method would not exist if Marie Kondo didn't love books. That's part of her actual personal journey on how she shaped her own tidying method. She tidied books on the bookshelf when she was five years old. She read every book in the library about organizing the traditional way in order to figure out what's the secret or what's the commonality or what could be done differently so that people don't return to clutter cyclically. So it's clear that it's valuable to her, but she doesn't feel like she personally needs to keep actual books on her shelf to reflect that value. Exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about your learning process that you explore, this design thinking mm -hmm. and what it means or what is meant by design as multisensory experience and approach to lifestyle. Yeah. Okay. So the, the thing that she, that she says in the book decluttering section of the book, which is kind of fun because I hadn't read it for a while and I read it in preparation to speak with you, is this idea about not opening the books and not reading them and not getting sidetracked by that. And that you're supposed to instead feel them and hold them and see what your relationship is with them. And she also says that whatever the information is in the book, that it's in you, even if you don't remember it, which I thought was really an important point because there are so many books I don't actually really remember reading, but you know that that material must have gone somewhere. And so I found when I went through it, I was in a decluttering mood, which I think when people pick up the book, if they go for it they're in the mood to do it. And so I had more motivation to declutter my library than I normally would have. And so I remember I, I decluttered quite a bit, like I discarded quite a few books. And some of them are books that I had had physically around me for like 20 years. And I, I guess I should frame this by explaining, like I've always loved books. I love books so much that when I was a kid, I accidentally got locked into a library after closing. Wow. I, I didn't notice. And I went into book design. I write books. Like I love books. <laughs> So in a way, it kind of felt like giving away part of my identity, but it wasn't traumatic. Like I just was, it kind of felt like I needed to do it, but I didn't know where I was going with it. And then this really unexpected side effect happened, which is that I started reading a lot of my husband's books because we've been together for a very long time. We've been together for 20 years. Um, so I've been seeing his books all this time, but I never read them because they look, they look boring. <laughs> But there are a lot of like communications theories, but because he's in, that's his field is communications. And I started reading them partly on his recommendation, but it just kind of like loosened something up in the home. And what I, I think had happened is that I was kind of trapped by the old ideas. Like they are ideas that I had internalized, but because they were physically around me, I kept kind of returning to them. And I had felt kind of creatively stuck at that point. And I think I was kind of, you know, maybe feeling a bit mid-career. I'd been designing for, you know, 15 years or something. So it really loosened things up for me. And once that started going, I started finding a whole new set of books that I had never really tried reading before. And it's livened up my classes and it's sort of given me a lot of new ideas, including new book ideas. So I wasn't expecting that when I, when I took it on. 
But I feel like physically moving those items out of my space, I could see them, but I wasn't aware I was seeing them, if that makes sense. So yeah, so the, sorry, you'd asked me about the haptic aspect and I got off topic. So haptic is kind of a fancy word for multisensory, like instead of just using your eyes, you're using your sense of touch and your sense of smell and so on. So what she's describing to some degree is not just using your eyes. So when she tells you not to read, we don't think about this very much, but we read with our eyes. It's a, entirely putting ourselves into our visual sense. And there are some theorists who feel that when we started printing books, that there was something about that process that started to make us concentrate all of our senses into our visual sense, and that we began to lose touch with other aspects of our senses. And I think this is really interesting because, and I'm not normally that interested in the Middle Ages, but I'm just going to go back there for a second. Before we started printing books, when you had a book, your book experience was communal and it was out loud. So you would often be reading a book with other people out loud, or someone would be reading it to you, or if you were able to write, you'd be writing out a book with your hand. So it was like these kind of physical experience to the point where if you were reading a book, even silently to yourself, let's say you had a sore throat, your doctor would tell you don't read anything because you're going to be, you're going to tire out your throat because your throat would naturally be moving in relationship to your reading. So we have like a really different relationship with books now. And we've become a really visually oriented culture. And there is a designer whose name is Kenya Hara, who is the art director at Muji and is also a book designer who talks a lot about the book as a haptic object. So he talks a lot about how um, when you're holding a book, you're feeling the paper, you're smelling the smell of the ink, you're listening to the sound of the pages and so on. So it's a haptic experience or a multi-sensory experience. And that really captured my attention because the cool thing about right now is that because books aren't the default way that you can read text, like you can read text, like you said, you read like a Kindle, is that what you said? Mm -hmm. So if you're reading a Kindle, that means you have the option of reading a Kindle. And so therefore, when you read a book, you're choosing to have that particular experience with the physical object. It's like a choice that you're making so you appreciate it more. And I think that that's really an underappreciated aspect of books, that they are this physical sensory object. Ever since ebooks and Kindles and stuff have started to be competitive in the marketplace, publishers who ask me to design books ask me to do more effects like raised lettering or gold ink or things that are in some way more tangible to a printed object. So it is kind of, even though print has sort of taken a few blows, it's also become more special. It's not the default anymore. And so that is kind of an exciting aspect of book culture now. The question, does it spark joy, is a simple one, but not so easy to execute alone. Extend your tidying experience by joining the Spark Joy Club, our online community filled with our clients, fellow listeners, and Kamari enthusiasts ready to support your journey. If you find yourself buried under clothing, stuck on storage, or pointing fingers at untidy housemates or family members, we want to help you finish your tidying journey once and for all. Support the show at the Joy Riser level and receive access to our exclusive virtual community, as well as the Tidy Home Joy Journal, your number one tidying companion. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click on Join the Club to get started. And now back to the show. You raised so many really good points. And one of the things that I was thinking as you were talking was this idea that that books do really have a character that is almost universally understood. 
And when I think of the smell of books, especially older books, that is a smell that we almost all know. And the shape of a book is something that I think that, you know, we all know, regardless of what culture you're from, that's a very common experience. And interestingly enough, even on our devices now, when you purchase a book, the image, the icon is of a book and it doesn't have to be. It could be anything, mm. you know, because it, it's not that physical book anymore, but we still identify so strongly with that. And I see that too in my clients. I mean, once they've decided what books are keeping and sometimes as part of deciding it, there is this real element of, do I like having these books? Do I like what these books look like around me? I think probably all organizers have experienced uh, clients who want to rainbow their books and it can be really beautiful. It can be a really beautiful way to display books or they want to arrange them in a certain way that's just either meaningful to them or something that they find especially beautiful. But none of these things that I've just said have anything to do with the actual contents of the book. So it's definitely an interesting thing. Yeah, the rainbowing book thing is interesting because that I've seen that come up in articles that are mad about the 30 book rule. I think the same people that get mad about arranging your books by rainbow are the same people that are mad about the 30 books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to say this again. I love books. And I'm a book designer. I'm color oriented. So I have a section. I don't actually, I didn't keep it, but I had a section for a while that was organized by rainbow. It was actually just lots of blue books. I just thought they looked pretty together. And I think, I think it's fine. <laughs> Well, I guess I, I just find it so interesting that that people that I that I assume would be very live and let live about mm -hmm. any other topic mm -hmm. seem to have a lot of opinions about what other people should be doing with their books. <laughs> yes. I mean, again, I think that it's really just a fascinating situation where people are telling you things that they are worried about. Like that's what I've started to yes. see it as. Because I know I have a friend who enjoyed KonMari, but the idea of sparking joy, it made her mad. She was like, sparking joy. She just kind of got a cloud passed over her face. Even though she likes Marie Kondo, just the expression maybe made her mad. And I was like, I haven't found out what it is that makes her mad because she doesn't know what it is. I read Marie Kondo as being very sincere. I think even her Netflix series is actually very sincere. She never exploits any of the people that are on it. It's very low-key and kind of human. So I personally trust her. If her brand is a, is a brand and a brand rests on integrity, I trust her as a brand. But I think when people are reacting, I think there's a lot of other issues that are coming up that, again, have nothing to do with her um, right. at all. And she's also created quite a cottage industry of people writing reactions to her in which they're kind of saying exactly what she's saying, but like in a mad way without a lot of practical tips. Do you know mm -hmm. what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. We've seen them all. And uh, they're all very interesting and definitely entertaining. But then there's been some that have kind of slipped through that are really, really thoughtfully done. Yeah. Uh, like I, I saw one, speaking of Spark Joy, that was breaking down the fact that Tokimiki is actually the Japanese term that was used in her yes. book. And it translated to Spark Joy after the translator asked herself multiple questions about how she was going to figure out what does it mean for English. So she had different variations like, does this bring you joy? Or does this give you joy? Does this give you pleasure? Because tokimiku in Japanese 
the definition is to enjoy, be in great prosperity, prosper, flourish, thrive, palpitate, pulsate, pulse, beat fast. So (laughs) I think um, that that was the best translation that she could come up with. And I think that because it's such an active verb, like spark joy, that's great. But I think sometimes people feel uncomfortable with that bar being pure joy because it's almost something that we're striving for and not something that can be easily obtained. So it, people struggle with it. And the main question, one of the main things I hear when I'm tidying or presenting on Kanmari is that what about those things that I just need, you know, yes. for example, <laughs> uh, that are just utility? They don't bring me joy necessarily, but I just need them. And so it's interesting how, yeah, I have to explain that, yeah, even the function and the utility of it is also joyful. It's just pleasing to have that handy. And it's okay to keep that just because of the utility's sake. <laughs> I love that aspect of that, actually. And she doesn't really talk about it so much in the life-changing magic of tidying up. I think if I'm remembering, it's something she talks about in the book, Spark Joy. Like, I I Mm -hmm. wonder if she must have received that question a lot. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure. And it's such a great point because then you, if you're thinking about it that way, then you're like, yeah, this really is helping me. Like, all the things in our life that we don't really think about and the idea of being grateful for them. Like, we're not a very grateful society. (laughs) We have a lot of items that like people have worked hard to create that we don't even think about. But for what it's worth, I actually think Spark Joy is a really good translation. Well, speaking of books and joy, we would love for you to share a little bit about your own personal decluttering experience. Did you find that that question, does it spark joy, was useful? Or did you have to kind of shape your own tidying criteria when it came to keeping books or letting them go? Yeah, I really actually struggled with the deciding what was sparking joy for me. Like, I think that's part of what's happening is that you have to come to your own conclusion about what that means for you. And I've always been quite an indecisive person and a bit of an anxious person. So that process of decision making for me was really challenging. But what I found was great, actually, is by the end, I had learned how to make decisions with more confidence, which is something that she suggests will happen. So yeah, I mm-hmm. I did everything according to the book. Like I did I did the thing where you empty out your purse every night, which by the way, I still do. <laughs> um, I, <laughs> wow. and, and that's the one I didn't think I'd do. I remember reading it and being like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do that, but it's actually easy and I don't run around the house looking for my keys all the time. Yeah, I took all the books and I laid them out and I remember clapping off the dust and being shocked actually at how much dust was on them. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of it. And then I just kind of got into it. Like I I really sort of, I had a handful of books that were really important to me that I I loved. I loved their covers and I had memories of being with them. And I just kind of wanted to have them around me as friends. I was willing to let go of a lot of my reference books because those are replaceable and sometimes they are out of date. And then there were kind of like lots of books and photos tucked into books. I'm really bad about using all kinds of things as uh, bookmarks. So I went through that process and I think in our home, the challenge was maybe a little bit that there's three of us and we all love books. So my husband loves books and my son loves books. And I didn't want to push them too hard on decluttering themselves, but they did what she says will happen in the book, which is that they saw me doing it. And then with my son, we went through all of his books. I let him break all the rules and read the books that he was going through because he was like six. And he really enjoyed that. There were so many books that he had on his shelves that we had forgotten about. 
And then the second part of that was that my husband built some shelves in my little studio area and I put them up. And then I had one shelf that I've left completely clear of books, except for I have three that face out. Like it's kind of almost like a, like a place where I would display something. And I rearrange what books are there from time to time, depending upon what project I'm working on or what I'm trying to move towards. And I really enjoy having that area in my studio. It's kind of like a clean spot. And instead of looking at the spines of the book, I'm looking at the face of the book. And uh, sometimes I pull out old books and put them there to remind me. And sometimes I put new books there. Wow. It sounds as though you've really given a lot of thought to how you want to enjoy books in your life. It sounds really beautiful. Thank you. So besides books, what is your favorite tidying tip? So there is a term in Japanese called sendoku, which is when you leave a book unread after buying it. And typically what that means is that you've piled it up with other unread books. So if you're the type of reader that has a stack of books on your nightstand, then that is sendoku. Uh, I don't personally find that it's necessarily incompatible with the idea of sparking joy or even of having a tidy environment because it might be that it just makes you feel comfortable to have your little stack of books next to your bed if it's sparking joy for you. But it is a style of sort of an extension of your library. I no longer have that little stack. I did for a long time, but now I have it on my shelf. And I think what I've done is I've replaced that with books that are facing out for me to look at. So when you get a book, it has that dust jacket on it. And the dust jacket is something that causes some people a lot of distress because they don't want to keep it, but they feel like they should keep it. And so what I like to let people know is that that dust jacket is packaging. There's a very famous art director who worked for Penguin Books named Jan Chikols, and he said that unless you find the hardcover underneath your dust jacket to be repulsive, you should discard your dust jacket because it's a wrapper. So he said it would be like keeping an empty cigarette package. <laughs> I like to let people know this because if you enjoy having a dust jacket, you should keep it. Like doesn't matter what he thinks. But if it's bothering you, a lot of people find them really annoying. You don't need to kind of box them up and keep them forever. It's your relationship with the book. You've bought it, so you get to take the jacket off. But I just have to acknowledge that it does hurt the resale value. So if that's important to you, if you like to buy books and then sell them again, then you would probably want to keep the dust jacket. But if it's just for your own purposes, you have full permission to get rid of dust jackets. (laughs) Love that. And of course, we ask all of our guests, what's sparking joy for you today? So I think in our house, the Google Images sparks joy. We like to look at images of animals, and especially my son likes to just tell me about animals he's learned about, and then we can Google them right away and look at them. They're not always contained in his book. So he's really into deep sea creatures right now, like from like the bottom of the Mariana Trench, and they all look amazing and kind of terrifying. <laughs> so he will tell me about them, and then we'll Google them and talk about them. And I think it's it's just given a lot of pleasure to us, and it doesn't take up any space, and it's free. Oh, that's so great. That sounds really cute. Any final words of wisdom? I thought maybe I might recommend a book to your readers. It's a book by Kathleen Finn, and it's called The Kitchen Counter Cooking School. And it's about a woman who goes to France to study cooking. And when she comes back to America, she starts to wonder why so many people don't know how to cook anymore and also why there's so much food waste. For example, she follows this family around the supermarket. (laughs) She just watches what they're buying and she notices they're buying macaroni and cheese, like the powdered kind. 
And she just goes up to them and says, like, did you know you could just boil some pasta and put some olive oil and some shredded cheese in there and it'll be just as fast and way better for you? And they have all these questions for her and it sort of turns into this journey and she starts going to different people's homes, looking in their fridge. I think for anybody who enjoys the life-changing magic of tidying up, that combination of elements of sort of social and personal, that they might enjoy it. And it's also a lot about decluttering your kitchen. (laughs) Yeah, this sounds like a great book. We definitely will link to it in the show notes. Thank you. Robin, thank you so much for being with us. This was really great. We really enjoyed hearing your take on the book controversy and getting your input on how to make sure that books spark joy for each and every one of us. Yeah, thank you, Robin. Thank you so much. To reach Robin, you can find her on robinmitchellcranfield.com or on Twitter at Robin Cranfield. And if you are tidying your books and looking for more details and tidying advice, be sure to check out our original books discussion via SparkJoy podcast, episode number 57, KonMari Books category, Building a Library of Joy. So now we want to hear from you. Tell us your burning tidying questions or share stories about how KonMari has impacted your life. Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and review the show which helps us reach others along their tidying journeys. To extend your tidying experience, you can join the Spark Joy Club. Visit sparkjoypodcast.com and click join the club to become a member of the Spark Joy community. Or you can join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for tuning in and we hope your day sparks joy. Thank you for listening to Spark Joy with your hosts, Kristen Ivey of For the Love of Tidy in Chicago and Karen Sochi of The Serene Home in New York City. Spark Joy, the podcast, is not endorsed by or affiliated with Kamari Media Inc. The opinions expressed on this episode represent the views of the co hosts and guests alone and do not represent the corporate position of Kamari Media Inc. or the Kamari Consultant Community.